Boston's back, baby. And if you ran Boston on Monday, you know one thing. You got to recover properly. And that means using the TheraBody Recovery Air Boots. The Recovery Air Boots are the most advanced pneumatic compression system ever created. Groundbreaking pressure massage for everybody. This is from the makers of the Theragun. Their exclusive fast flush technology flushes out metabolic waste at three times the speed of competitors. Faster cycles means faster recovery. For yours truly, the best thing about this is you can get the Recovery Air Jet Boots. These are 100% portable. They're wireless. The pump is built into each unit. You can travel with them easier. You can go into the room next door. It makes you want to recover. Check them out today. And if you've been on the fence about this, now's the time to try it. Therabody has a 60-day money-back guarantee. So try these things out. If you don't like them, I guarantee you will. Send them back. You can get started for $699 as low as $59 a month with a firm. Go to therabody.com slash let's run to check these out. Link in the show notes. Recovery boots are now wireless. Therabody.com slash let's run. Here's the pod. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. The 2022 Boston Marathon is officially in the books and it was incredible. The sun was shining, fans were out in the course, the races were fantastic. For a few hours on Monday morning, felt like all was right with the sport of running. We'll break down Boston in great detail as well as our trip to the track at New Balance on Friday night to witness a DMR world record. Out west, we had collegiate records galore. Florida, California, had some great track meets, great sprint action there. And we'll break down the USATF Golden Games at Mount Sac, where we saw Elaine Thompson hurrah show up, but not run the final. Raven Rogers opened her outdoor season with an impressive 158 solo 800. Mike Norman, Faces Fred Curley in a terrific 200-meter showdown. Fred Curley getting the win there in 19.80 seconds. Plenty to discuss. I was very happy over the weekend to be joined in person by Weldon Johnson. Hopefully you were as excited by all the festivities in Boston as I was. We have Robert Johnson providing remote coverage, and now he's coming in to lay down some hot takes. Guys, good morning. Good to see you. Not happy to see you guys. I'm glad you guys are buddy-buddy. I was at an Easter egg hunt on Saturday, and I told a guy, you are my true, true twin brother. I'm done with my real twin. I'm done with you too, Jonathan. I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, but you made like three mistakes in the intro. You said the Boston Marathon is officially in the books. What does that mean? Like, what is, how is it, was it ever unofficially in the books? And then you said out west, there were collegiate records galore. Then you said Florida. I'm not even sure what the third mistake was, but... <laughs> I'll okay, all right. I, I, you, you made two mistakes in that correction of my mistakes because officially in the books, Robert, that's something you say all like we use the phrase in the books all the time. It's a cliche on let's run.com. It's officially in the books. I'll tell you what, I'm sitting here on mile 23 of the course. All the scaffolding's gone. All of the runners have finished, and the ones that haven't finished have stopped running. So, yeah, 
it's officially in the books because the race is over. And then you said I had three mistakes and you only pointed out two. Boom. Roasted. All right, guys. Happy to see your face, John. I do have a question about Boston. Like, what's it like on the ground there, guys? Like, John, you live with, how many roommates do you have? Like, does the average person in Boston who lives on the course go out and watch it? Do they have the day off? Is it like a day drinking day? Like, what is it? It's a huge drinking day for the college community. Like the course runs through Boston College and it's very close to Boston University campus. For those kids, it's a spring drinking holiday. I don't think they have classes. And if they do, they probably just blow them off. You know, go out and have really have a good time. Hopefully it's a sunny day. It was a little chilly, but sunny on Monday. For the rest of the community, yeah. If if you live on the course or near the course, you're probably going to go out to spectate. Not all companies give you the day off. Patriots Day, it's a state holiday, but not every company recognizes that holiday. But I think a lot of them, my sister went out to spectate. She's, you know, she has a casual interest in the sport, but I wouldn't call her a diehard running fan. But she lives in Cambridge and she went out to watch around mile 25. So, yeah, if you're close to the course, they'll go, you'll go out and watch, but it's not a given that everyone has the day off. The Boston Marathon on Patriots Day. It's just glorious. It's how things should be, John. It's just different when it's on Patriots Day. I was telling Sam Grotwald, the head of elite athletes for the New York City Marathon. Can I say this right now? I think New York's my favorite marathon, but Boston's so unique, and I think the city's more behind it. And it's just so unique, the history, but it's on a Monday. How many people actually get to watch it nationwide? Who knows? But the world had some normalcy on Monday. Great weekend. I went up on Friday for the press conference. We had a Let's Run.com meetup Friday night before the New Balance track event. No advance notice. As we're heading to the bar, I'm telling John, like, John, it could be just you and me. But it, it was great. It was fun. Well, we had at least five people who were not related to me or best friends with me in college. And one of them was a woman. So... You know, I think it was about 10 of us in all. Pretty good time. I had a good time. Beer was flowing. The meet was great. The track was pretty fun going to the meet. I thought it was successful. And I think the biggest feedback we learned is if we're going to do these moving forward, we need to hype them up a little, you know, give people about one week's notice. I know that's not usually what we do at letsrun.com, but if you really want to get a good turnout, you probably have to spend a little bit more money on the beer, but if you want a good turnout, you say one week in front of ahead of time, Hey, this is what we're doing. People can sort of make a plan for it. Well, it was like 12 hours notice. I thought it was great. We had a vegan shot putter there. A, I don't know, like a three thirty eight fifteen hundred meter guy there. I, I, I had a good time. Next time we'll give people more notice. Shout out a let's run visitor who lives on the west coast sent a 50 dollars gift certificate to the bar to pay for stuff i'm like wait we're supposed to be paying but this guy's a boston native like I, I, oh my god i would be there i just heard about this this is great i love boston you guys need to do more of this i'm just sending money to the bar we got a great community let's run we want to start doing more in-person events so if we get what million million and a half unique visitors a month What's 1% of that, John? That's the goal in a bar at one point. That would be 10,000 people. Uh-oh, that's too many. <laughs> point. It's like COVID, 0.1%. How about? 
yeah, that's that's still what a hundred people. But yeah, great weekend in Boston. It definitely felt more like marathon weekend than it did in October. October, the media room was not nearly as full. There just wasn't the same sort of excitement. The fields were watered down. This one was so much better than that October race. And let's talk about the races because they were spectacular. I mean, that women's race, that final mile, that's one of the greatest final miles I've ever seen in a marathon. The duel between the Olympic champion Perez Jepchirchir and Ethiopia's Ababel Yashana. Once they came through Kenmore Square, it was on. There were moves being made left and right. You thought it was over. Yashana almost missed the turn onto Hereford Street. Just a terrific final mile. The toughness of Perez Jepchirchir. I'm not going to forget that for quite some time. So impressive. And the men's race, you know, it wasn't a close race in the end, but that's because Evans Chabet just took a torch to the field through the hills, the downhills in Brookline. 13.55 from 35K to 40K. I mean, when you're in a field that good, this was the best Boston Marathon field ever. Everyone was still together, 15 guys with five miles to go. And Evans Chabet wound up running, winning by 30 seconds. I mean, if you can put 30 seconds on 15 guys of that caliber over the final five miles, you did something very special. So both races, terrific in their own way. Really, really enjoyed watching them. Okay, guys, just talking of thinking about Boston's got me in a better mood. The races were insane. And just when Boston was starting and the thing was getting underway, I was like, wait a minute here. This is so much better than what we know is going to happen in Chicago and in London and et cetera. Boston, we always say there's not enough fumbles, there's not enough interceptions, there's not enough randomness in, in, in track and field and distance running in general. The marathon, particularly before the Super Shoes, used to add that up. Are they going to hit the wall and, and, and blow up? But I was thinking before this, I'm like, Boston's better. I get why people may not want to run it because the, you can't predict the weather. It's not predictable. But we have... The question is, is there going to be a headwind, a tailwind? Is it going to be snowing? Is it going to be 90 degrees? You have a lot of variables in it. How are people going to respond to the hills, the uphills, the downhills, et cetera? And I'm just like, before the race was going right in the early miles, I'm like, there's a huge hole in Elliot Kipchoge's CV. This is like, he's like the Pete Sampras of the running world. He can't win on clay. We don't know if he can win on hills. So maybe I shouldn't say he can't, but he has never showed up at the French Open. Yeah, I mean, the two championship marathons, the championship-style marathons he's won are the two Olympic marathons in 2016 and 2021, both on relatively flat courses. So, yeah, it's a whole. Do I do I think Elliot Kipchoge would have won a bunch of New York City or Boston marathons if he had chosen to focus on them the last eight years? Yes, but he hasn't proven it yet, and now that's the only thing left he has to prove, right? He's already won the other four majors. It's time for him to run New York this fall and Boston that spring. That's what everyone's expecting. It's going to be a bit of a disappointment after the, all the talk if he doesn't do it. So, yeah, but, I, you know, that's in the future. Focusing on today, I mean, I guess I, I got a few takeaways from the race. First of all, I mean, Jeff Kosgai was the number one in, sorry, Jeff Chirchia, Perez Jeff Chirchia was number one in the world going in. We talked about on the Friday 15 how it's kind of like boxing. She won the Olympics, so she has the title belt now. That she won New York. She defended it in, successfully in New York. And even though Bridget Kosgai almost broke 216 in Tokyo, you know, Jip Chia Chia beat her at the Olympics. So you kind of got to say, 
she's number one unless she gets beaten in Boston. She almost got beaten, but she held on, threw some punches. Yashina, Yashina responded pretty much every time until the very final move down Boylston Street. So Jip Chirchi is number one, but I, I do have to think, like, I don't know, if, if they face if they race straight up in like a a London or a Berlin this fall, I think I might still take Cosguy. But what excited me is Perez Jepchircha after she won, then she started talking about the world record. That's a goal of hers. You know, her PR is 217.16. I think it's fifth all time. But it's three minutes slower than Bridget Cosguy's PR. So she knows she can go faster. And my hope is that we get Cosguy versus Jepchircha part two. Probably at London is the most feasible, but I'll take it in Berlin or Chicago. And they're going head to head, but also Jeff Chichir, I think, wants to take Cause Guy's world record. So it's going to be exciting. That women's race was epic, particularly on the 50th anniversary of women being allowed to run the Boston Marathon officially. But I'm really super pumped to hear that Jeff Chichir is saying she wants to go for the world record because what hasn't she accomplished? I mean, New York, Olympics, Boston, all in the last year. Pretty amazing stuff. And in the middle of that race, I mean, they basically were kind of running world record pace. We we had the greatest 11 miles in the history or fastest 11 miles in the history of the Boston women's race. Um, between miles 5 and 16, they did it in 56-35. That's 214-52 pace. So, you know, I know, the, I know the world record's about a minute faster than that, but that's pretty sick. And we'll see what she can do in the future. But this should th- officially throw out. I mean, as a coach, when I'm watching that, I was watching the finish and my in-laws happened to come down and my wife and they're watching it with me. And, you know, you see the contrasting forms and they were debating who was going to win. And Jip Churcher, I mean, her form looks terrible. It's kind of like her legs kicking out and back and it looks there's a little Natalie Cook to it. And people talk about form, you know, can we just officially never talk about that again? Yes, or not looks very smooth. Doesn't even look like she's trying. And we're like, who's going to win? One of them's visibly trying. Other one's not visibly trying. And the person who looks tireder wins. Now, that, I just think that's misleading because my wife, when she was watching it, she goes, oh, I think that woman's going to win. Pointing to Jeff Churcher. And she did win. So the smooth form stuff that you hear from commentating and stuff like that. Bye-bye. I think that's a good point, Robert, because... There are sometimes I'll watch a guy and I'll, I remember Dennis Comedo or Elliot Kipchoge, and you're just like, wow, that guy was born to run the marathon. Look how smooth and in control he is. But then you'll see other people, Paula Radcliffe, she held the work, rec, world record for almost for 16 years. Her form was awful. You know, she was bobbing her head. She, it looked painful. It, it, was, it, it worked for her, but. It looked painful. It did not look like, oh, that is the model of efficiency, even though I think it was did end up being pretty efficient for her. Albert Correa, it, this struck me. I was watching him. He's the New York City Marathon champion. He was running Boston on Monday. He looked like a grandpa shuffling along out there. I was like, how is this guy still in the lead pack? He just doesn't look like he's running as fast as everyone else. But you know, these marathoners, they run hundreds of miles a week in training. They've settled on a form that their body can handle for that much running. So, yeah, I do think that's a good point there, Robert. I was about to rip Robert for his point. I don't think you 
visibly want to strain on purpose. But John, your Paul Radcliffe analogy was a good one. Some people who don't look that smooth somehow are very efficient, whatever. But when it came down to the final mile of this race, I think we said there were seven lead changes at the final 1.2 miles. I mean, this was an epic finish. Ishana, she just looked, she didn't look visibly as tired. Forget about even the form part, sure. The form part, though, might be there, you know, even at mile two. But when they're kicking at the end, I'm like, okay, she looks composed. Perez makes her move, tries to drop her. Ababel comes back up, gets in front, happens again. And I'm like, okay, she can't keep doing this. At some point, Ababel is just going to go by her. And it didn't happen. I'm like, oh, she just wanted it more, which I think is BS. But I, I felt like that. I'm like, this is the Olympic champion. She just wills herself to winning. And maybe that's a gross oversimplification, but she's figured out how to win on the biggest stages. And I think it's John who pointed out here, only 17 seconds separate Yashana from being the reigning New York City and Boston Marathon champions. You know, she lost here by a handful of seconds. She lost by, I think, like 12 seconds in New York, something like that. She was third, only third in New York, but second here. But she's going to win one of these. I mean, she, she's, I think she, that's one thing we're learning. She's a world-class marathoner. We knew that coming in. You guys both picked her to win? That's not Whereas right. I, I picked Negatu Azimura, who was... One of the she was in that pack of four that broke away along with Yashena and Jeb Chirchir and Jeb Koskai, but she ended up fading fairly early and wound up seventh. Wait, what? I'm watching the whole end of this race next to John. I'm like, damn it, this is who John and Robert picked. I know I picked Jeb Church here. I just knew you guys didn't pick Jeb Church here. Oh, I was trying to pat myself on the back for picking the winner. You guys are just total also rands. So. Wait, were you you're trying to pat yourself on the back for picking the number one marathoner in the world who won the Olympics in New York? Re- really great credit to you for going way out on a limb and making that pick. Well done. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was terrific. And then it's interesting, though, if you look at their splits, first of all, Robert, that stat that it's only 214.52 pace just puts into perspective how ridiculously fast Bridget Cosguy's world record is. Her world record's 214.04, so she ran that pace for an entire 26.2 miles. But the other thing is, in the men, you know, the men was pretty honest through halfway, 63.24. The women, but they were able to slam it home, at least Chibet was, right? You know, he starts running 420s down uh, Beacon Street in Brookline, Whereas if you look at the women, they had that really hard surge where that group of four and eventually a group of three breaks away after five miles. But then they really weren't like crushing it or anything on the way home. You know, mile 21, that's the top of getting to the top of Heartbreak Hill. They ran that in 552, which, okay, it's uphill. But then the next few miles, 521 for mile 22, 533 for mile 23, 517 for mile 24, 530 for mile 25. I mean, I, I think that's pretty clear that that early move for, at five miles, that really came back to bite them. They were not closing this out, you know, the way Evans Chibet was. It was much more of just who can hold on and who can manage the best. And in the end, it was Jip Chirchir. Yeah, I pointed that out in the recap. The final mile split, 
523. You got six or seven lead changes, and that's it? They were both exhausted. I was shocked at the finishing time. After they hit halfway at 109.41, and then every time I look at the screen, I would see those three clear of everybody else. I just assumed they were still crushing it. And I thought they were going to just crush the course record. But the pace took its toll. And I think that's the thing with Boston. I mean, Yashana even like, okay, she does well in New York. She does well here. There are different types of runners who can excel in these courses. You see the fast glitzy times and some of the time trial courses. It doesn't always correlate to Boston in New York. And I think that's one thing why we love these races. One thing about the time, they did throw away like a minute at the beginning because the first 5K was only 1741. So basically 520 pace is 220. If I remember correctly from my goal in life being to break that 220 barrier. So, you know. That's a big downhill. The biggest downhill of the course is the first 5K. And they didn't take advantage of it. So I, I totally agree with you, Robert. If they maybe gone out faster, winning time was 221.01. The course record's 259.08. That right there could have been enough to get the record. Now, I don't think they had tracking back in the day, but when I was escorting Catherine into Robert of the world record in Chicago or doing the best that I could before she dropped me around somewhere between mile 15 and mile 18, point out that her first 5K was probably very similar to that 1741 we saw last week because I remember thinking, okay, I'm supposed to run 520 pace. And back then it kind of wasn't totally, they weren't sure if men were allowed to pace, so sort of officially her guard. And I asked Harry Pinkowski, the race director, I said, what if she doesn't come with me? He's like, use your own judgment. So I ran the first mile at 520. Catherine was nowhere to be seen. 20 seconds later, she shows up. Second mile, same thing. Third mile, same thing. And then she looked at her watch at 5K. I think she must have had 5K's mindset and, and her thing. She's 17. I, I want to say it was 1740 something. I don't really remember, but it was 17 high. Realizes she's way off pace and just started accelerating and running like under 510. And there's a big difference when you're on edge, John. I mean, you know what it is. Anyone's run a marathon, like, I felt comfortable in like the, for, to be honest, in the like anything over 515, like 516 to 525 range. But when it was down under like 510, I was like, oh my God, I'm not, how long am I going to last? Well, there's your 2001 Chicago Marathon recap. Uh, looking at some of the other results, Mary Googie was third. So she's on the podium for a second year in a row. Edna Kiplagat at 42 years old gets fourth. It's funny. I thought, I'm like, oh, she does the same thing every year. She just closes down people and ends up finishing highly. She was second in 2019 and 2021. She won in 2017. Super impressive. 221.40 by a 42-year-old on Boston. So that's a master's course record. And Ngugi basically credited Edna for helping her along, you know, and they kind of worked together to reel some people in. Uh, Viola Cheptu who was second in New York last fall. She was sixth. Jip Cosguy, who went with Yeshina and Jip Chirchir when they made that big move, she did not end up faring well. She slid down to seventh by the finish in 224. Izimoror, who was 
my pre-race fa- pre-race pick to win. She was only eighth. Charlie Perdue from Great Britain, pretty good run for her, ninth in 225. And then top American. There was only one American in the top 10 this year. It was Nell Rojas, who ran 225.57, personal best, and second straight year being the top American in Boston. And for the second straight year, she did it without a shoe contract. John, when you're going through that top 10, are you giving our viewers too much credit? I mean, not that a woman is defined, defined as the male, the men in their lives, but shouldn't you say Mary Nagugi? Like most people don't know who that is. That's Sammy Wenger's, well, Sammy Wenger's wife, Viola Chepchu, better known as Bernard Lagat's sister. I mean, I don't want to be contribute to the patriarchy, but the average person, I think, who's on a run or whatever, unless they're a diehard, would kind of like to hear that information. I suppose I called Viola Cheptu the New York City Marathon runner-up. I feel like maybe that's a little bit more relevant in this case. But if you want me to mention who everyone's related to every time, I mean, do I need to say Benson Kiprudo, the brother of Dixon Chumba, when I talk about him in the men's race? Like, where does it end, Robert? Well, that would be helpful, John, because I, I didn't realize that until I read the New York Times piece on him, or I'd forgotten it. So people aren't saying that enough. It's like Robert Johnson, the brother of Weldon Johnson. So, and unless there's a marriage, though, we need to have a rule. At 18, you, you keep you, you state the name that you're going to be known as, because it wasn't Viola Chepto at Florida State. But I don't understand why the results only go 10 deep. I feel like I don't think we've mentioned this person's names in our recap or whatever. I'd like to give love to the fellow 40 year olds. I feel like she's my generation, Melinda Elmore. Former Stanford runner, like, wasn't she like a 15-5 girl back in the day? She's 42. Has to be Canadian. Well, I guess it wouldn't officially be a master's record, but 227.58 for 11th for Canada. Do we say Wendy Elmore, wife of Graham Hood, the Canadian 1,500-meter Olympian, Arkansas star? See, that's what I'm saying. Where does it end? Where does it end? I'm happy to refer to people as, like, the husband of... Like, Adam Goucher, it used to be Kara Goucher, like, Kara, Adam's wife, but now it's Adam, Kara Goucher's husband. So, like, who, who, name some runners, like, like uh, What about the Holes? Do you say Sarah Hole, wife of Ryan Hole, or do you say Ryan Hole, wife of American record holder Sarah Hole? Wait, what? Ryan Hole is the wife of Sarah oh, Hole? Oh, hus- husband, sorry, I was, yeah. Now, that's a tough one there. Because Ryan used to wear the pants in the relationship, but I don't think he is anymore. Wait, that's a sexist term. I apologize. Right, yeah, Robert, who doesn't like me saying that someone ran with balls, is suddenly allowed to go around saying, speculating on who wears the pants in their relationship. How about we just say Ryan was having the more successful running career, and then he retired, and Sarah's career took off. I think that's a more accurate summation of events. Look, and if you're a younger, younger viewer, listener, may not have heard the Let's Run.com law of averages. By definition, everything in life comes out to be average. Some are great, some are down. This also applies to relationships. And the great Ross McGowan Supporting Club member and I came up with this theory when he was at Cornell. If you look at any running couple, only one of them runs well at a time. It never happens that two are run. Generally, in the early stages of the relationship, this is, this is true for the Ryan Hall and Sarah Hall. It's the man that runs well. He's pursuing the woman. He's trying to impress her. It's his primal instinct to find a woman to bear his children. 
and testosterone is flying, and they run incredibly well. The woman generally in this stage in this relationship does not run well, but once the relationship becomes stable, once she has stability, and even in Sarah Hall's case, the children, her biological needs are met, and she thrives. Whereas the man's testosterone goes down and he withers away in the stable relationship. So there you have it. What Graham Hood, he's been retired for decades. What is he doing? Nothing. Melinda Elmore, now that she's in this great loving relationship with her husband, she's rocking it. Sarah Hall, same thing. Stephanie Bruce, same thing. And don't tell me it's an age thing that only women run well when they're old because Abdi Abdurrahman, see, Abdi Abdurrahman's still on the prowl. That's why he's successful in his 40s. I thought he's he's not dating Diane Curry anymore. No, oh, I apologize then. Oops. No, look, this whole Robert theory, it's based on one, maybe two couples on like the Cornell distance squad in the mid 2000s. That's really the only evidence. <laughs> I guess he did support some evidence right now, but this is just one of those things that Robert he th- makes it sound good and then you you know you do some of the hard research and you're like oh, actually maybe it's just kind of a harebrained thing he came up with a couple over a couple of beers in Ithaca well Colin Cowherd has made a career in sports and like relating things to everyday life. I mean look Charles Darwin did the same damn thing he was on a boat he was bored out of his mind he looked out the window hey that bird kind of looks like that monkey over there <laughs> <laughs> So, so he just came came out with one of the most influential theories in the history of science because he was bored, and everyone just accepted it to humor him. There's no actual scientific basis to evolution. Is what you're arguing. John, be honest. Look, if they, if Twitter and YouTube had existed back in the day, you think Darwin would have noticed any of that stuff? Hell, no. <laughs> I don't think that he came up with the theory of evolution because he said that what a sudden bird looks like a monkey. He looked, it was all about the finches, Robert, that they didn't look alike and therefore they evolved, you know, but <laughs> Darwin probably would have been censored on Twitter for disinformation. We are recording this on 420, April 20th. So maybe Robert has hit the weed this morning and that's why he's going a little nuts, but All right, back to running. There is one woman we didn't address from Boston yet. That's Molly Seidel. I think coming in, everyone thought, oh, she's definitely going to finish with the top American, right? And she was the only one who hung up front when the pace started to drop. She was there through mile six, 512, mile seven, 513. And then she couldn't handle the pace, ended up fading back. And said her hip, imp- the hip impingement that caused her to miss a little bit of time during her training block, that was acting up, and she didn't think it was worth it soldiering on another ten miles to the finish when she was fading and she was, you know, she's running the World Championships marathon in Eugene three months from now, so she decided to drop out. I don't know. I mean, I guess the question I would ask you guys: we didn't get a chance to talk to Molly after the race. She did release a statement. Do you think this was a case of she went out above her pay grade here and once these lead women started clicking off, you know, 512, 513, she should have backed off a little bit? Or is it just she wasn't totally healthy and this was inevitable, it was probably going to happen, that she was her hip was going to act up and she'd have to drop out? Both, John. I mean, you, you, you nailed it. 
She said in her statement, my only goal was to hang with the lead pack and stay in the mix. That worked really well until it didn't 15K in. I ran outside my fitness, underestimated downhills and paid for it. So glass half full, whole glass half empty, which is it? I mean, she tried to hang with the leaders, wasn't fit enough to do it and paid the price. I don't read too much into it. Monday, I was reading a little bit into it. She avoided talking to the media. Now, granted, she dropped out, and it's easy to avoid, but, like, put yourself out there. You're the superstar. Why not just go talk, come to a press conference? I think almost Boston should make her do it, but is she putting too much outside pressure on herself? But (laughs) I think she can stay grounded. She doesn't have to hit a home run every time. Every marathon until this one, had been pretty good. I mean, New York wasn't tremendous for her, but right after the Olympics, I, I'd still give her like a B plus for that one. She ran two twenty four. She ran faster than ever, any American woman's ever run on that course. I thought that was a good result, especially because she had those that rib injury in her build up. No, she, look, she'd run four great marathons, and most people don't make it through their marathon career without running at least one bad one. So. Yeah, it's unfortunate for her because this race means a lot for her, and I think she was well suited to do something, but she had a tough day. I don't, I'm not going to bash her for avoiding the media. I mean, it's not common for athletes who drop out to speak after these races in my experience. And the fact that she was able to at least deliver a statement to the organizers that was related to the media, that's a lot more than we've seen from other athletes in a similar situation. So I did appreciate that. But yeah, it look, she's, you know, it's a bad race. Everyone has them. Unfortunately for her, it came in the Boston Marathon. John's really kissing up there to get him all his good side. John, wipe your nose or something on it. Some brown stuff. No, John, it's natural for a journalist to want to be well-liked by the stars of the sport. But uh, look, Molly's statement was fine. And I, I just wish that there was a requirement. I, I wish that. One of my key things for the, for the sport is that people treat it like a professional sport. And then the real professional sports, there's a media requirement. In the NBA, you don't blow off the post-race press conference. You get fined if you do so. So in the future, I think they should say, hey, anyone who's getting an appearance for you more than $10,000, her might even be over 100000 you're going to go meet the media afterwards. But in terms of actually what happened, what happened was exactly what Molly said was going to happen. You guys remember this from January? She did an interview with Track and Field News. And I quote, Let's be serious. It's been perfect on that day, meaning at the Olympics. And prior to Chichar wanted to run a 216, I cannot run a 216. We're going to get our asses handed to us nine times ten if the course is fast. Now, admittedly, the winning time wasn't 2.16, but they tried to run 2.14 for about 11 miles there. So even they blew, up, blew themselves up a little bit. But um, I'm fine. I'm, I try to stay intellectually consistent. It's never bothered me. When were we talking about this a few weeks ago? Oh, a thing Mo dropping out of Milrose. Didn't bother me. This doesn't bother me at all, particularly with the injury and the, and the World Championships coming up. I, I don't have a problem with it. Um, the only thing I had a problem with was sort of the race coverage, but I vowed, I didn't quite vow, I came close to vowing not to talk about transgender for one full year. I'm vowing not to talk about how bad the TV coverage is for a full year too, because you're watching this thing on Universal or NBC or whatever it was, USA, and it's like, 
I'm not sure it's necessarily their fault. There's not a huge staff. They're trying to cover six sporting events at once. Two marathons, two wheelchair races, and two mile races. But you don't really know what's going on. There's no concept of like, wow, these, this was the 11th greatest 11 miles in the race. This is a 43. We've got someone in the truck doing mile-by-mile mile splits. Like, all of that was lost in the race. It's just like they're kind of waiting for someone to get ahead, and then they kind of announce it after the fact. Well, I think there are two things that I noticed. I didn't watch really the full USA, the full USA broadcast because that's not what the feed they show in the media zone. But there are two things. One, for some reason, the cameras just weren't working as well as they normally do on the course. In the early miles, it was fuzzy. And then at the end, you just get this black screen popping up every so often. I rewatched the finish this morning at the women's race, and that was really distracting. It was really annoying during the key part of the race. And I'm sure there's nothing, you know, that's not what the production crew wants to happen. But there was some issue with the camera in the final miles of the Boston Marathon. That's, a, that's not a good look. I was fine with how Car Goucher and Paul Swangard called it. But, and then the other thing, Robert, I assume they just overcovered the wheelchairs because they do this pretty much every world marathon major, but people aren't tuning in to watch that race, right? They're tuning in to watch the professional athletes, usually the professional runners. And I think it's great that the world marathon majors pays out this money to the wheelchair races. But most of the time when they're showing at the end of the race, it's just the leader has broken away that way clear of the field. Nothing's really happening. To me, I think it would be better spent showing spending that time showing the men's and women's elite races as opposed to the wheelchair races. Again, I, this is the type of thing I vow not to talk about, then I talk about. I'd like to see them just spend a lot of money and get one broadcast right instead of trying to do three broadcasts, international feed, NBC or USA feed, and then a local feed. Like, hire one less elite. Even in Kenya, that costs like 20 grand. And shit, pay, pay the four of us $5,000 each. And we can give them mile by mile split. You, you'll get the, the stats. The st- you need stats, people. You, you need help if, if you're going to be broadcasting all these things at once. But it struck me. I was surprised because after the race, when I was looking up the stats from 2008, 2012, five straight years, the gap between first and second, the Boston Women's race was at most three seconds. And then the, the only other time it's been less than 10 seconds was 2015 and then this year. But I was stunned. Because, hey, on this podcast, I like to make everything about my personal experiences and blah, blah, blah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people in media, I think, are a little bit self-absorbed. It's just kind of natural. People like to talk about their own life experiences. I couldn't believe that Kara Goucher, at least I didn't hear it, she never brought up the fact that she herself was involved in the three-way sprint finish in 2009 for the win. Like, maybe she didn't want to brag or, or I don't know. I just couldn't believe that she didn't talk about that. At least I didn't hear her talk about it. Now, middle man laws were in the room at that time so maybe i didn't hear it robert don't pretend of course they have stats people giving them stats on the broadcast the problem is they try to cover too much the i i mean you say it you're, you're branded a bad person they spend way too much time on the wheelchair coverage i think i heard a broadcaster tell me that as well so i don't know why they do it i mean boston now has a paralympics division Marco Chisetto, former, was it Alaska Anchorage runner? I mean, this guy's a double amputee. It was a big story when he lost his legs, probably like, I think it was in the late 2000s. But, you know, he's running. They have prize money for this. We don't see that broadcast on the race. It's inspiring stuff. But, like, 
you, you got to pick what you're going to focus on. And I just showing like a one wheelchair zooming in front of everybody else and then doing an interview afterwards and not using picture in picture. I just don't get it, but Hey, I, I don't think the TV presentation is, is a focus on these races. And I think that's a detriment to the sport, to be honest, but. All right. So I want to return to the top American in this race, Nell Rojas, because she made an interesting decision in the lead up to Boston. If you remember last year, she was sixth place, top American, as an unsponsored athlete. And she signed with Adidas after that. So she ended 2022 as an Adidas athlete. and She was training in their shoes. But then before Boston, she decided the shoes weren't working for her. It didn't feel great on her feet. She wanted to go to Boston with footwear that she felt comfortable in, that she you know, could just stand on the start line and be confident. And for her, that was the Nike Alpha Flies. So she decided to end her partnership with Adidas, ran in the Alpha Flies, and finished faster than she did last year as the top American the second year in a row. And this decision, I mean, on the men's side, we had a similar situation. Scott Farbel was with Hoka NAZ Elite, and he had time remaining on his contract. He could have been with them through 2022. He decided he needed to leave the group. He wanted to find a different coaching situation. And he latched on with Joe Bosshard. He finishes as a top American and runs a PB of 208.52. Now, it's important to note, Scott, when I talked to him in December when he left the group, he said it was the footwear had nothing to do with it. But it's very interesting to me that the top two Americans – in the Boston Marathon, neither of them had shoe contracts, even though they had the chance to do a contract with Adidas and Hoka. And both of them wore the same shoe in the race, the Nike Alpha Fly. John, this is interesting in a lot of different ways. First, I want to point out for the record, Evans Chibet, Perez Jip Church here. They have something in common, John. They both wore Adidas shoes to win the Boston Marathon on Monday. Yes, I found that interesting. Nell gives up her contract. The shoes obviously didn't work for her. So she did what she had to do to run well. But if this is a profession, you need to make money. And the question is, like, is another shoe company going to sign her? Because what if their shoes don't work out for her? You don't want to have the optics of, like, Oh, let's say you're a non-Nike, you're a Brooks, and you're like, is she going to sign with me and then jump the, dump me in the shoes? I think it's a huge risk factor. I didn't even realize Fobble still had time left in his contract. I think his is a little bit different because he's like, he's close to Ben Rosario. He's like, I want to try something else on the coaching front. And it worked really well with him, with Joe Bussard. But I also found interesting, John, you had some tweets on this. Pointing out, you know, the top American man and woman at the 22 Boston Marathon were unsponsored. Kellen Taylor, a Hoka NAZ elite athlete who was, you know, expected to be one of the top Americans in Boston, but had to drop out with an injury. She chimed in. This isn't that notable. Both had sponsorships and both chose to end them. I totally disagree. I think it's totally notable when, like, runners... If you're an American runner, you sh- your livelihood comes from having a shoe sponsorship. You're giving up your livelihood. I think it, it's very unusual. Yeah, of course it's notable. And you can quibble, okay, unsponsored, 
the traditional sense of mo- how most in the running world think of that is, wow, they don't have a contract and they're not quite good enough for to have attracted one yet. You know, they're really grinding. That's not necessarily the case here. These athletes did have authors and chose to end their contracts, like you said. But as you also pointed out, it's not like the Adidas shoes are known to be slow. I think we have enough evidence at this point from Adidas athletes running fast and winning races that they seem to be a pretty competitive shoe. And that was, it was just a personal preference. Nell didn't like how the, the shoes felt. And if she's only feels comfortable racing in the alpha flies, then yeah, if she does, she's either going to be unsponsored or she's going to get a low ball offer from Nike because she's sort of locked into that one shoes brand, one brand of shoes. Scott Farble, we don't know. He, I didn't really ask him how the shoes felt. It is notable that he has been wearing Nikes for his PR in the Houston half and in Boston, but it's also very possible. In fact, I think I did talk to him. Basically, like he wasn't just going to take some lowball offer ahead of Boston just to say he had a contract. He had enough built up in savings over the past few years that he could go into this race unsponsored with the thought of, hey, if I run something pretty good, I'm going to get a nice big deal afterwards. I think that will happen. I I would be surprised if he just continues to race in alpha in the Nike shoes without a deal because he likes them that much. Because this is a guy who ran 209.09 in Hoka non-super shoes in 2019. So I think he will take a deal if it's with the right brand and if it's for the right amount of money. John, this is a very interesting topic on a number of levels because, first of all, when he ran that 209 before in Hocus, which is not a super shoe, he had a huge tailwind pushing him. To be honest, if you, from, if you go from a non-super tailwind. shoe... What? Huge tailwind, Robert. We, yes. we ran an article with the report cards. This is revisionist history from you. I don't remember anyone mentioning a huge tailwind at the time. And if you look at our report cards, according to Dark Sky... The wind was one to two miles per hour on that day. Now, our race recap said six miles an hour, but neither of those are huge tailwinds. I think you're just retroactively trying to discredit what was a really impressive race. Well, I stand corrected then, but it actually helps me make my point even more. I mean, John, you wrote a great article about how Scott Fobble hunted down a PR, and it was amazing. I mean, 64-26, 64-26, dead even, PB, that was great running. To do that second half as fast as the first on those hills, with some amazing marathoning. But to be honest, I would expect someone going from a non-super shoes to super shoes to run more than a 17-second PB. And I think maybe the wind made the difference. A slight tailwind before, slight headwind this time. People are saying how much of the shoes. I think they're worth at least a minute. So I'm not convinced that he's in way better shape than he was you know, before. The thing that I think that is where you and I disagree is I had I toned down your article a little bit when I was editing, like, and he'll have tons of suitors. Like to me, the whole thing is practically charity. Do you think these runners are really selling seventy five thousand dollars worth of shoes, hundred thousand dollars worth of shoes? One individual runner is not. Now the brand image to Nike is worth billions with a B altogether, all their athletes. But any individual runner is pretty much disposable. I mean, do you think Scott Fable will ever make an Olympic team? He's thirty. He very well could. I mean, Jake Riley. Made an Olympic team at 32 last time. He's a better marathoner than Jake, I would say. But like Jake Riley is—is is he? Are tons of people going out, you know, and buying? He he got a deal after making the team. Is everybody going out and buying on shoes now that Jake Riley was what 34th in the Boston Marathon this weekend, or where, where did he finish? 
Well, people are buying on shoes, though. I think. Look, here's the thing: if you want to say you're singling out Scott for an industry-wide issue, like, are people going to buy all these new shoes because Scott Farble signs the new brand? Well, probably not. But you could say the same about all these other people. The fact is, right now, you would have to say he's probably the second best marathoner in America behind Galen Rupp, who this year has not been Galen Rupp so far. That guy should have a contract. Just the way that the the world works. Like, is he? You know, is he a magnetic personality? I wouldn't say that, but he's a decent, decent guy. And you run two hundred eight, people are going to want to sponsor a two hundred eight marathon at Robert. Okay, a couple points, John. He had a contract. He gave up the contract, so maybe that's what Kellen Taylor's getting at. And this was a good run by Scott. I think being one of the top American marathoners is going to get you a contract. But two hundred eight, and it's on uh, on its own. Two hundred eight is the old two twelve or something. It's for Americans, it's good. Big scheme of things worldwide, not. But back to your Twitter thread. Supporters Club member Des Linden. You guys should join Supporters Club. Let's run.com slash subscribe. You can save up to 20% on running shoes. She ran the Boston Marathon, guys. In case you've forgotten. She is the only American woman to win the Boston Marathon in what, like 30 years? 40 years? She won in 2018. The previous American woman women's winner before that was 1985, so 33 years. Well, for almost 40 years from now, 37 years from now. But she replied to your tweet, John, and Kellen's tweet. It said, this is terrible for the sport. It's reverting to amateurism, another product of the shoe wars that we always knew was coming. And first, like, I need to make sense of this comment. I think she's saying that if one company has a product that's better than everyone else, it creates an unfair advantage, and then some people are just going to have to – they don't have a choice. They want to perform at their best, or they want to make a living, and they have to make a choice. Is that what she's getting at? Yes. She's saying, essentially, that we're at the point where certain athletes would rather run unsponsored in Nikes then take a shoe contract because they're worried that their performance is not going to be as good in the other shoes. I don't know if that's exactly what's going on here because we've said Adidas has a we, Adidas has a shoe that seems to be pretty competitive. Nel Rojas personally doesn't like it as much as the Nike ones, but a lot of other athletes have run plenty faster than it. Scott Farble, likewise, he said that shoes were not the reason he left it. Hoka. Now, Maybe that maybe he's not telling the truth here, but that's what he claims. I think the best example of what Des is saying here is Jake Riley. Because look at him. He goes to Chicago in 2019, finishes the top American there. Then before the Olympic trials, chooses not to take a contract so he can run in the Nike shoes. He makes the Olympic team. Then he signs with On. He really hasn't done anything since signing with On. He would be the example you point to as someone who said, no, I'm definitely sticking, staying unsponsored so I can run in the be- very best shoe. But I'm not. it's not quite that simple with Fable or Rojas in this situation. Now, if Fable moves on and says, okay, I'm not taking another deal this fall because I think the Nikes give me a better advantage than you know brand X, maybe that's the case. But I think Riley's the best example of what Dez is getting at. Well... With Riley, I'm I'm not totally sure what you're trying to say. 
he 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 gave up the shoe for one race and made the Olympic team. But are you trying to apply him run coming through? All right, here's a trivia question. What do you guys think Jake Riley came through halfway in Boston this year? 70 minutes. I have no idea. Close, John. 68-36. He finishes in 230-48. We actually left him off our men's report card. I mean, that's an F. But, John, that has nothing to do with the shoes. He's just not running well right now. Are you trying to apply that he's not running well now because of the shoes? I mean, I, the f- no, 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 that's that's a fair point. I'm not trying to say exactly that, but I'm saying, do I think On's marathon shoes are on the same level as the Vaporfly or Alphafly? We don't have enough evidence of that at this point to say yes. But my my assumption would be, yes, he also, he's not running well for other reasons, but I don't think the shoes are helping him. Right. And... Back to what you're saying about the Adidas shoes or whatnot, you said like something like they may, evidence since they may be good enough. Th- that's not doing it if you're an elite athlete. You know, they may not be hindering them, essentially, is kind of what you're saying. This is these people's career. The idea of world athletics has created a huge problem, and we act like it's fine, and it's still a huge problem. They need to have guidelines in place, no technology can be copyrighted if it's going to be in the elite shoe. I think that's where we need to go. The technology needs to be available to everyone. The technology, you can, you can, whatever. So let's say, what if Nike, now they don't have exclusive right to the phone, which I think is the most important thing, but we shouldn't have a proprietary device that determines who wins races. So they need to change the rules, open it up, so thankfully, like the foam isn't exclusive, but what if the foam was exclusive? Like everyone who's just not Nike would be completely screwed. And I, I, I think some of these other shoes, the problem is Nike sponsors the top athletes. So is it the shoe? Is it the athlete? Whatever. Adidas has the next best stable of athletes. So d- maybe their shoes are equal, but maybe also they just have the runner who might be almost as good as the Nike one and the Nike guy's a bad day. He beats him. So we don't really know, but this is a problem. I loved it. Des's comments. I think, yeah, you, you definitely are right in that we don't know definitively, but I would say a number of the other shoe companies have started to basically copy what Nike was doing. Maybe they haven't done the exact same thing, but they've used that as the basis to create their own super shoes. And look at some of the top American performances. Sarah Hall broke the American record in the half marathon in January wearing ASICs. She was second in the London marathon a couple of years ago wearing ASICs. Molly Seidel was third in the Olympic marathon wearing Puma, who basically was sponsoring no roadrunners as of about three years ago. I think a lot of these shoes, a lot of these companies do have shoes that are at least comparable to the Nikes now. Not all of them, but... John, Elliot Kipchoge won the Berlin Marathon with a Nike shoe with this flap flapping out, a non-super shoe. I mean, people can have great performances with shitty shoes. I'm not saying these are shitty shoes, but like... Just because one athlete doesn't does something doesn't mean it's fair. Maybe Puma shoes just as good, but it's going to take so long to figure this out. World Athletics, at the very least, should be demanding testing on these shoes because we need to know what the playing field's like. Golf, golf does this right. Golf looks at the equipment, tests the equipment, makes rules for the equipment, and we're not doing this for shoes. And I, I thought I had gotten off this topic for a long time. I didn't think we were worried about competitive balance anymore, or because we're. We were like, oh, everybody's caught up. But when Des Linden says, this is a product, the shoe wars that we knew were coming, 
It sounds like she doesn't think it's a level playing field. Well, I think I think what it does is it lo- it restricts the number of brands you might be willing to sign with, right? Because if you think that if you're confident that the brand you're signing with has a shoe that's comparable to the Nikes, which we know are good and are basically the best, if you have a, if you sign with a brand that you think is comparable to that, then yeah, you're going to feel fine. But there in the past, that wasn't even an issue, right? Like most you, when you were signing with a brand, most of the time you would say, Oh, all the shoes, the racing shoes are pretty much equal. Right. And you're just going to sign with whoever pays you the most money. And now it's something that you have to factor in. And it might mean that your options are only five shoe companies where it might've been eight in the past. Do you think that's accurate? No, I think the numbers are much more limited. There aren't a lot of shoe companies with a lot of resources. There's not eight shoe companies vying vying for most American people. A lot of people, it might be two or three companies. So it's a problem. I I feel like I'm listening to a podcast from 2019. We're ranting about shoes, but I see what Des is saying. But to me, there's more shoe, there's more shoe wars than ever. We have Brooks, we have on with the team. We have Puma with the team. We have Reebok with the team. We have Nike with several teams. We have Team Minnesota Elite. We have uh, there's a Hanson's Brooks. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm leaving out just a, a bunch of people. Like we've never had more people running post collegiately getting paid in America than ever before. So I will leave that topic on a, a, on a up on a high note. Can we move? Do we, have we talked about the men's race? I don't know. We, we've been talking so much originally about the women's race and now the shoes. I don't know if we've even analyzed the men's elite race in Boston. We have not. So let's go there now. I mean, the one thing we did say, 1355 by Evans Chabet from 35 to 40K, that was the move that broke open the race. And if you look at the other results, second and third, previous Boston champs, Lawrence Girono, Benson Capruto. Robert, did you have any takeaways were you going to praise Chibet, or is there anything else that really struck you from this race? Chibet was amazing. And when I look at him and both Lawrence Chirino, I mean, though these guys, admittedly, they haven't always been running majors, but their consistency is remarkable. I came up with this stat. Chibet has finished in first or second in 10 of his 14 career marathons. And Chirino has finished has run 15 marathons since the show of 2016, and he's finished in the top two in 13 of 15. So these guys are incredibly, incredibly consistent. But when it finished, I just thought to myself, do we know that Kipchoge would have won that race? I know I keep talking about Kipchoge having a hole in his resume, but how much faster can you go than 13.55 between 35 and 40K in a marathon. Now, Kipchoge, I mean, he's always defied, I mean, he's just, he's been masterful in, in the marathon. And I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but I don't know that he could. So it was just, it was pretty remarkable to, 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 to witness that. I think that's a fair question, Robert, because you look at these mile splits that Chir- that Chibet ran for 22 through 25, 427, 426, 426, 437. Have we ever seen a stretch like that, that deep into a marathon? I can't remember Eli Kipchoge doing anything like that. I know he's dropped a four, he can drop a 420 something mile 25 to break people, but that's usually enough. You know, he doesn't just keep reeling them off after like that. The only time I can remember a, a stretch of a marathon that fast was the 1348 for the first. 5k in london in 2018 
and then ever mostly everyone ended up blowing up on that day. Kipchoge still hang on to win. But in terms of like actual big city marathons and not the time trial things that Kipchoge's done, I can't ever remember a segment that devastating. And again, Kipchoge maybe he can run a thirteen fifty and he beats Chibet, but I think that's a fair a fair point to make, Robert. And it gets to you, you know, when we're saying could Kipchoge have done this, that tells you how impressive what Evans Chibet did on Monday really is. But also, if if Kipchoge is in that race, he he may not have just led to the five k. He probably would have started the grind early. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, is he slowing down a little bit here? Like I think Kipchoge may have let him get a little bit ahead, but he's going to keep that relentlessly pursuing him. Um, I was trying to pull up the the elevation chart, I'm having some trouble here. But um, you know, I, I the twenty fourth mile is pretty far downhill. I mean, you're going basically 30 meters of elevation down you're you're losing almost 100 feet is that right so that's how much is 100 feet worth john 100 feet in one mile john kellogg's in the corner of the office here he says that 100 foot drop is that right john can you confirm that 100 foot drop between mile 23 and 24 boston it's worth 18 or 19 seconds so that thirteen fifty five is really only a fourteen fifteen. I I can see Kipchoge doing that. Yeah, it looks like about a hundred foot drop. I mean, it's look, it's impressive either way. The other big things from this race, I mean, we talked about Farble running dead even splits. I, I I was super impressed by how he ran, and you know, I feel like I've seen some people in the message board say, "Oh, he ran." You know, he hung back, and that's not the way you run a marathon. No, you run the marathon to run the fastest possible time. And look, Scott Fable probably wasn't winning this race under any circumstances. So he made the choice very early in the race. He saw, look, we just ran sub 24 minutes for the first 8K of this race, and they're picking it up. That's too much. I need to back off. I'm not going to be able to run 206 pace the rest of the way. And he didn't. And he came through, you know, he's a minute behind at halfway, but he passed 15 people over the second half of the marathon and he got up for seventh place. So I thought it was an incredibly smart run by him. And that is something that comes with, you know, being an experienced marathoner, running on this course, having success on this course in the past. And, you know, we talked about the consistency of Lawrence Toronto and Evans Chabet. Scott Farble, obviously not on that level, but... He's also been very consistent outside of his one bad marathon, which was Boston last fall. Everything else has been pretty solid. 12th at the trials in 2020, that wasn't a great day. You know, that was a, not what he wanted, but he also missed, he'd gotten sick a month before that race, and that really affected his buildup. And he still ran 212 on a top course, but you look at all the other races he's done, I mean, they're all pretty similar. He's broken 210 three times now. How many Americans have done that? You know, certainly in, in the modern era, it's only guys who are active right now. It's him and Rupp. Those are the only guys who can say that. So, yeah, this was sort of got back to the Scott Farble we saw from three years ago. And the question is now, can he sustain it through the 2024 Olympic trials and make that team? He's only 30 years old. I think he's got to be feeling pretty good about where he's at. I mean, I guess we're only two years away from those Olympics. Olympic trials could be even less than that. I was thinking Rutt may not be around then, John. And man, 
American marathoning on the men's side is. Maybe we need Shadrach at church here. His half debut was pretty damn good at New York, but I feel like there's not a lot of, I don't know, powder in the guns or something. No, there's no one. There's no one in the. I mean, maybe Connor Mance if he goes to the marathon and starts developing, but. Other than Rupp, you wouldn't think there's anyone out there right now who you'd be like, oh yeah, they could, they could, they should finish on a podium in a world marathon major, or they could be an Olympic medalist, right? I think that's just. I know they look Shadrach Biwat. He was on a podium in Boston a few years ago, but I, I think most of them, you think, oh, they need sort of a specific set of things to go right, and they're still they're looking for another. Who, who's going to take that role from Rupp? Is, could anyone take the role from up? I don't know. Two words for you guys. Grant Fisher. Now, I don't expect that to happen anytime soon, but if you're looking for the, for the Rupp-type talent, that's your answer. Look, Fobble's back to his old level. I'm not convinced that he's ahead of where he was before because he's got the shoes now, but glad to see he's running well. And I like to give the young coaches a hard time. You know, John's always in love with his new young coach, DeJour, and praising them and, st- and whatnot, but I get confused. What, cl- what qualifies as in love? Do, just when I do an interview with a coach who's under the age of 40, does that automatically mean I'm in love with them? I think that's really what Robert, Robert says. He says, anytime I even identify a coach who's under 40 years old, it op- immediately means I'm in the tank for them. Look, as a former coach, I still coach. Go to let'srun.com slash coaching. By the way, we're going to be getting ready with, for our summer training. High scores. this is your time to sign up. Become a Let's Run.com VIP. John Kellogg and I will give you the base of your life. Adults, you can do it too. But look, the coach is the jockey. It's all about the horse. But it's hard not to be. I mean, Joe Bossart, look, I was thinking, look, the guy knows what he's doing. Because this is a kid in high school. They got his whole family to move from where they are living so he could go train at altitude. He's a student of the sport. And in your Scott Fob article, the part that I really loved was it said that Bossard like tried to keep things simple and he repeated the same workouts for the final four weeks. And I just thought ten weeks. Oh, ten weeks. Same four yeah. workouts over ten weeks. So I just like, oh wow, like that's pretty brilliant. Have a different plan. You can sell that to them. There's a mental side to it. There's he's doing don't don't let's don't I, I think he's deserving of some praise here because if you look, he's coached four marathon buildups. One was Laura Thweet, Chicago, when she wasn't totally healthy. But the other three, Laura Thweet got fifth at the 2020 Olympic trials. Emma Bates was second at the Chicago Marathon last year. And now Scott Farbles run 208 to finish as the top American in Boston. And Joe himself will be the first to tell you, you know, he gives all the credit to the athletes. He says Bates and Farble, they were already good marathoners when he started working with them. But... You know, he, you can't just, I'm not going to just totally ignore the role of the coach. He got them to, you know, he helped them run well in this race, but he's, he would tell you he's not the, the reason why they're running well. That's another reason why I thought he was a good coach. Gave the praise to them. I mean, let's be honest. It's, well, Emma Coburn was chopped liver before she got coached by Joe Bossard. No, he, he, I just, I don't know. I thought, okay, Maybe I'll bow down to the Joe, Joe Bossard altar. But look, I love Ben Rosario. I don't think Scott Fobble is necessarily at a higher level. The American, I'm not sure which American I was most impressed with at Boston. You guys handed out the grades. Um, 
I think I've got to give my highest grade not to Fable, but to Alcana Cabet. This guy was in the lead pack the entire damn race until it broke Okunamamas, right? At least, I think he had the lead at like the 21 mile mark. So, maybe not quite till 35K, but pretty damn close. He runs a PB at age 38. Look, I know that he's finished higher in majors, but that's pretty damn impressive to me. So, that was my highest ranked American. I was tempted to give it to CJ Albertson. Like he made that race. He just makes things so much more interesting. From I, I want I always say our joke is let's run. Hey, making a boring sport interesting one day at a time. CJ Albertson, you made that broadcast entertaining, you know, one mile at a time. So thank you very much. I know he didn't quite finish it off like he did last year, but I enjoyed it. What about you guys? It was really it was really interesting talking to him after the race, Robert, because I said he was very he seemed very disappointed with his run. And I asked him why, you know, what was his goal? And he said, well, his goal was to make people hurt, to make a move and sort of shake up the race. And that's what he did. He hung with the lead pack this time. He didn't, you know, he was at the front early, but he never made that big breakaway that like he did last year. But then mile 16, right before the Newton Hills, he runs a 434. And his hope was if he could do that, they would be hurting a little bit more when they hit the hills and they wouldn't the pack wouldn't be as inclined to drop him to really pick up the pace and make a move and drop him on the uphills, which is where he kind of struggles a little bit. And it worked. He they didn't drop him. He was still there at the top of the heartbreak hill. The problem was he himself wasn't feeling that great after making that move. His muscles started to cramp up. He couldn't close well. But he made the move that he wanted to make. It kind of helped keep the pack together and he ended up running a PB. I don't think he can be too disappointed by his performance out there. And I think it was CJ in the, in the moment he's thinking of it as an athlete and he's chasing these big breakthroughs and he's convinced one of them is going to come these, this one of these days soon. And he just wanted that really big day where he runs 207 or 208. He didn't want the day where he just runs 210, even though this was a step forward. Well, John, earlier you said Shadrach Biwat had a podium finish at Boston. I was like, what? Three straight years in Boston. He was fifth in 2016, fourth in 2017, third 2018. Now, that was the crazy weather year, the worst weather I've ever seen for a marathon. And maybe some of these other American guys were wishing Boston had the depth it had in some of those years because Shadrach never ran faster than 2.12.01 in Boston. Look at some of the guys behind C.J. Albertson, who was 13th. Matthew McDonald, he was with the second pack with Fable most of the race. He finished 14th, 2.10.35. Reed Fisher, some are arguing he's 10 man's best runner right now. I'm still going with Drew Hunter, 2.10.54 PB for him, but that's only get you 16th place this year. Mick Iacofano, hopefully I'm saying his name right. I wanted to give this guy an A. You guys gave him, I think, a B rating and said maybe just on performance it's a C because he's run 209 before. But this guy's half marathon PB, but he's 104. He sets a half marathon PB. He's leading the Boston Marathon. Come on. Would you rather would you rather be him at the end of 25 years from now? I don't know. Who would you rather be? This is your only shot. You don't have the other credentials Scott Fobble has. Would you rather be you might want to say you finished top 10 of the Boston Marathon so you can rag to all your friends. 
would I rather say I finished 17th, but I was leading at halfway and I ran 211, or I finished 7th as the top American and ran 208? There's no doubt. I would say 208. That's not even a okay. question. Well, then. Let me, let me just phrase it differently then. Who would you rather be? Matthew McDonald or Mick Iacofano? Matthew McDonald's 14th place, 210.35. Mick fades to 211.48, 17th place. I think I'd be, rather be McDonald because, like, okay, you can tell people, but like 20 years from now, is anyone going to remember that you led at halfway of the marathon? Like, when you're telling people, oh, what was your best Boston finish and result? You say, oh, I ran 210 for 14th. Then Mick says, I ran, you know, 211 for 17th. I think everyone would take the 210, right? That you know, Mick's supposed to say, but I was leading halfway. You know, I was on TV. I, okay, no one's I think that. I would have rather led the Boston Marathon. Matthew McDonald's never have led the Boston Marathon. Okay. I got to admit, I didn't even know this Nick guy led the Boston Marathon. Was that missed on the broadcast? Like, I know they didn't do my 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 number one requirement for a marathon: always show the halfway split, always show them running through through halfway. And, Projecting the split. That's an easy thing for the average viewer to look at. Look, before let's move off Boston pretty soon because we've got a lot of other stuff we need to talk about. I don't think even John mentioned some of the stuff in the intro. Great wait, 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 wait. We got to talk about the hairstyles. No, 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 no. no Mick Eccafano's hair, John. Is it a Princess Leia look or more like Disney Mickey Mouse? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's, he's got enough hair for it to be a Princess Leia. We need to we need to bring in a fashion consultant, and also I want to talk about Paris Churchers here. We're an equal offender here. She's she had three she's had three great marathons in a row, right? Olympic champion, New York City champion, Boston champion. I don't even know the terms to describe her hair, but she had three very different hairstyles in each race. You may not even know it's the same woman. I think she needs to, she needs to get with like a fashion brand or something. If this wasn't, hey, I'm not going to say it, but she's a tennis star from Europe. I think they're knocking on the door, man. Someone needs to get on get on her, get her a, some sort of hair hairstyle deal. Okay, I don't know who you're appealing to with this hair talk, well then, but it's certainly not me. Maybe because I don't have very, very much of it. But two other things I wanted to hit on the men's race before we go. One, Colin Benny, we didn't even give him a grade. He was the top American last year. He finished 19th. We should have mentioned him in our. Boston Marathon grades. I think 19th and 212, that's probably a C. Like Colin, he's, his first three marathons went really, really well. This one wasn't a disaster, but it wasn't great. And then the other guy is the one who finished right in front of him, Jeffrey Camworo. I think a lot of people viewed him as the favorite coming into the 2022 Boston Marathon because of his two New York titles, his success in cross-country and the half marathon. And if you told me that he was going to be at the top of Heartbreak Hill, 21 miles, he's with the lead group of 15, I'd be like, Camaro is about to unleash hell in this field. All he heard was his buildup had gone well. He was fit and ready to go. He didn't have it. And I'm not ready to, you know, I'm not going to write him off or anything, but it, the, the course, I think the course may have just broken him because unless there was an injury that we don't know about, he was hobbling around the hotel afterwards, but he just didn't have it for those downhills on the way home, the last 5K, and he faded all the way to 18th and 2.11.49. Definitely a big disappointment. we got to add we got to add Benny into the grades. Cam Moore, well, Cam Moore's already in there. Another guy you guys didn't have in the grades, Lisa DeSisa. 
he dropped out before I think even 30k. What's happened to him? He used to win this race. How many times? Twice? Twice. Yeah, I mean, he's getting a little older. He's been around. This is really his 2013 was his first big year, and that's when he won his first Boston. Bahanu Legese also dropped out. He was with the lead pack at 30K, and he's a two-time Tokyo champion, third fastest man in history. He just kind of disappeared as well. But that, that look, this happens. Some people have bad days in Boston. So the thesis 32, Fobble's 30. John says one is old and the other is not. Well, marathon age, Scott Fobble started running marathons in 2017. And Lolisa de has run a lot more marathons. He was running three marathons a year, sometimes four. I don't know if he ever ran four. But in terms of like marathon age, yes, I would say Lolisa de is older. What about Ilya Kuchoge? I mean, he's a freak of nature. He, he's been running since 2018. But... Here's the thing, he's not he hasn't taken the same approach as Lolisa. Kipchoge runs two marathons a year, one in the fall, one in the spring, like clockwork, that's it. He doesn't go chasing extra races. He always makes sure he's fully recovered before he does the next one. He's been very deliberate about it. But he's also a total freak of nature and the fastest marathoner of all time. So I'm not sure if it's fair to compare anyone to him. And speaking of deliberate, we mentioned her earlier, but Edna Kippel got 42 years old, fourth place. She said the exact same thing. I'm like, how do you do it? This is before the race. She's like, I don't overdo it. I do two marathons a year, you know, a couple halves. That's it. And Des Linden, Supporters Club member, we mentioned her earlier. She gave herself a B plus. You know, she's 13th, 228.47. And I was like, she's like, considering my buildup, like this was a pretty good run. And I was like, wait a second, Des. I feel like you always run a B-plus in the marathon. She kind of laughs. She's like, thank you. But she kind of does. And I think the common theme for me, for Edna, Des, Fobble, when you're talking to Joe Bossard, people remember, you're, you're not trying to do something your body can't do. It's not that complicated. I always complicated the marathon. I never ran a good one. You just It's an aerobic activity. You're trying to get near your best what your body can do but you're not trying to exceed it so just don't forget that and hey all these we gotta give a shout out web guy eric westland didn't break three hours the first person in the history of let's run.com has finished a marathon over three hours java we're all inclusive now this is true though i finished the 2016 Boston Marathon in over three hours. You did? Yeah. Bad day. What? Qualified with a 235, but uh, just was a little warm. Totally totally ran out of gas by about eight miles. Last month of my buildup hadn't been great. Yeah. Wait, you ran Boston while working for us and we were like interviewing people? I, I Robert, I, I, I think I just, this was so it must have been embarrassing for the brand. I blocked it out. A young guy under the age of 30? You guys have the brain's memory of a goldfish. Yes, 2016, it happened. Trust me. I remember it. When did you start working wow. for us, John? 2014. Wow. I pop my apologies to Eric for slandering him like that. But Jeffrey Campbell is limping afterwards. Eric is probably very sore. I also got to apologize to Eric for one other thing. I was in Boston. I didn't even see Eric, but I should have brought him the Therabody Recovery Air Jet Boots. These things are super portable. 
because the pump is built in. You don't need some big pump device you have to haul around. Robert John, you guys see this little bag? They fit in this. So if you have them, you can put them on a plane very easily, travel with them. I should have driven them up to Boston and given them to Eric. He'd recover much better. He'd probably break three hours in his next marathon. Everybody needs to check these out. Therabody.com slash let's run. The most advanced pneumatic compression system ever created. The exclusive fast flush technology flushes out metab- flushes out metabolic waste faster, up to three times faster than any competitors. Faster cycles means faster recovery. You have nothing to lose. 60-day money-back guarantee. Free shipping. Check it out. Therabody.com slash let's run. Link in the show notes. Come on, people. You thought about getting these things. Now they're way more portable. You got to do it. I love mine. And hey, I I did a shout out. I used them after my first over 40 soccer game. We still need a goalie. 35 and up and want to play goalie in Connecticut. Email me. Weejo at letsrun.com. Well, then left out the key attribute because I'm jealous that he has those and not me. They're wireless. You don't have to plug them into an outlet. I thought I said that. All right, Boston wasn't the only marathon of the week. I was obsessed with what happened in Seoul. Not really obsessed, but I started a thread about it. Uh, men's and women's course records both went down as Moses had Jones to But what impressed me was the 23-year-old Brazilian, Daniel Danasamento. He's broken Ronaldo DaCosta's long-standing South American record. DaCosta's had set the world record of 206. Was it 50 back in the day? Way back in the day. His world, that instead is the world record for like 10 years. It was still the South American record. Gets smashed because this guy runs. It's the thread. most unlikely sub-205 marathoner in history. His... These are 14, 17, and 29, 13. And I thought it was a great thread. I don't understand what's wrong with Let's Run. The forums, Some, I mean, I think a lot of people like to listen to me on the podcast, but there's also a lot of people that don't like Little Road. Because my post, just announcing this fact, had 44 downboots and one upvote the last time I checked. And I guess people were insinuating that I was... Presenting fake news, because I didn't mention the fact that he had run a 206-11 marathon in Valencia. But look, it wasn't fake news at all. This guy's PBs are 14, 17, 29, 13. As recently as 2020, he was losing races, running 14, 17 in the 5,000 and 851 in the steeplechase. Now he's a 204 marathoner. So he did run 206. He ran 209 in his debut last year, then DNF the Olympics, 206 in Valencia, and now 204. Like, this is wild. Now, some people may be thinking that I'm insinuating he's on drugs. I guess it's certainly possible, but Brazil's had more than one. You know, DaCosta was kind of a flash in the pan. Well, do you remember racing DaCosta? I think it was actually at Mount Sac. We were talking about Max Sac last week. You, like, lapped the guy. This is, like, kind of right when the internet was starting. I recognized who he was. I saw the name. I said, oh, my God, this is the world record holder in the marathon. He's getting lapped in this race with no one's paying attention. It's kind of sad. So I just thought it was an interesting story. Put it on there. My visitors to my own forum attack me. 
All right, one correction here, Robert. You said Ronaldo da Costa held the marathon world record for 10 years. He held it for one year. Kelly Canucci broke it the next year in Chicago. But yeah, I think, look, totally shocked by this performance. I had never heard of the guy before this race. Turns out, if you guys remember last year, the Olympic marathon, remember there was a guy from Brazil who fist bumped Kipchoge during the race. It was like one of those viral moments. That was Daniel Donosimento. And now he's run 204. He's the fastest non-African-born marathoner in history. Brazil has had some decent marathoners in the past, like you said, Robert, da Costa, and Marilson Gomes dos Santos. He won New York twice in the 2000s. So it's not totally crazy. They are a country of about 200 million people. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at this. I'm like, how the hell did this happen? He wasn't a good track runner. And then he goes 209, 206, 204, 51. He's only 23 years old. Maybe this guy was just born to run the marathon, but I I have an eyebrow raised about this progression. I'll say that. Now, there was a post on the message board pointing out that this guy, Mr. Dosmiento, is that how you say it? I don't know, whatever. He ran 1432 for 5,000 in 2014 at age 16. Isn't the internet amazing that we can find figure that? So that's pretty good. I mean, that's equivalent to like nine, almost basically nine fourteen thirties, roughly nine flat for two miles. It's sixteen, so that's pretty good. And eighteen, which is also pretty good. But two hundred four, I mean, that's that's next level. Okay, enough marathon talk, guys. There was some track action. Well, first, John, we got to start. There's still indoor track action in April. But New Balance opened, it's called The Track at New Balance, I believe. This is like part of a billion-dollar complex, the whole area. I'm sure this track costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars? For sure, Robert. $200 million for an indoor track? That would mean hundreds of millions means plural. It wouldn't shock me. For sure, over $100 million. The venue is very impressive, Weldon. One of the most impressive indoor facilities I've ever been in. There is a huge grandstand. Apparently, there are up to 5,000 fans can come. I'm not sure if they're all seats, but you know there was a grandstand on the back stretch that didn't really get pulled out, but they can add extra seats there. There's a lot of space on both of the turns behind them for people to sort of stand around or for people to set up booths or whatever, vendors. There's free beer for all the fans, in attendance. So New Balance, they definitely kicked off this thing, right? They threw a humongous party. I'm sure it cost them a significant amount of money to offer free drinks for everyone. And they didn't charge any admission to this thing. It was top class. You know, it felt like a real professional sporting event, not just sort of a, a track meet. <laughs> but the question, my question was, you know, are they going to be able to deliver this sort of excitement and atmosphere moving forward and probably not because again you're not going to be able to get the guaranteed excitement of the record attempt like this but i think it's going to be a great place for athletes to compete and to host professional track meets that's the point of building this space it's not necessarily to be the fastest track in the world they hope it is but we've already got boston university for that the point they're hoping is to really make this like a social space and to like an arena for people to go and watch this thing. There's a beer hall at the bottom of the building. You know, there's some restaurants nearby. 
they're trying to revitalize this neighborhood and I'm ho- they're hosting NCAA's indoors in 2024. They've got the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix the next few years. I hope people turn up and pay tickets, pay money to buy tickets for this thing and can actually put it to use because it's going to be pretty depressing if they built this brand new stadium and no one shows up. John, why the pessimism? This is going to be the Hayward Field of the of the West. Why do you think people won't show up? Boston's a track town. I I hope you're right, Weldon. Hayward Field of the East. And I definitely think the possibility is there. That's what I I walked away. I think I was like, yeah, this kind of reminds me of Hayward Field with all the modernism, but you know, our sport just isn't that popular. And so that was what my my worry is that you won't get that same sort of atmosphere but you're optimistic you think hey this is a great stadium people will come they'll want to come and watch meet meets here yes more so than any other facility it's in a major city it's the right size there was a party atmosphere at night okay fine maybe if it's like a wednesday afternoon and the sunlight's coming through it's a different thing but like they had the music pumping i i feel like there's hope here like it's at new balance and get people come up there's a bar right underneath it it's all one area you can go it's not it's like Staten Island just built a beautiful track. I don't know if the sound's as good. I mean, I've never been to Staten Island track at night. I think the night made it much cooler, John, actually looking. But you have to go to Staten Island. There's no bar, like, next door or what have you. Like, this is a whole entertainment complex area. People in Boston can go out one weekend a year for whatever. The New Balance Grand Prix will be there. You don't have to have a lot. Like, sure, I guess there's tracks at BU and there's bars near you. Know that people don't go out for that. But like, New Balance also has the money to put into this. They're gonna make this a priority, right? They can get their employees to come out. Like, I don't think it's too hard to have one huge indoor track meet professional year and just make this the sort of like pre of the indoor season in the U.S. No, I think that's a good point. And what. I guess my worry, Weldon, is like New Balance has put so much into making this a terrific facility and there's so it has so much going for it that if people don't show up to that, then like people ever going to show up to watch a big time meet, you know? There's all these amenities you would think everything should be in place to get big, good fans, uh, good big, good crowds for meets held at this building. If it doesn't work out, then I'm going to be worried. But yeah, I think New Balance has done everything they could to make this into sort of a track and field, an indoor track destination moving forward. Now, this event on, was it Friday night? They had some miles beforehand. We're getting texts from the New Balance PR people. Like, are you here yet? And we're like, I'm coming for the DMR. That's it. Like, but they had a party atmosphere. They, But that's what needs to be kept, John, for every single professional track meet in that facility. Party atmosphere. You have to entertain fans. Let's not forget that. Although I do find it interesting. the Did you guys, John, there was an opening event on Wednesday. The opening event for the track was some fashion thing. So <laughs> maybe it's not just about track. You know, uh, I don't know. Because the, the other thing that is cool for this facility is it can be used year-round. Like the track can go down to the ground. They can run basketball courts over it. Like a lot of tracks are sort of limited in what you can do with them in the summer. You know, they. so I think this they were very smart in planning this. And I'm not going to get too greedy. I want one big pro track meet there a year. NCAs, that sort of stuff can be a benefit. And then they can use it for other stuff. I don't know if they can have many concerts in there or what. 
Well, I'm glad you guys think it's it's neat. I mean, I didn't mean to start with Debbie Downer, but I just, I just thought Walden said hundreds of millions. That seemed high to me. When y'all were there, though, I called you on Friday and said, how does it compare to Hayward Field? So this could be the Hayward Field of the East. I just hope that we don't make the same mistake that we did in the outdoor track and put every damn meet in the same city. It's too much. People don't want to go pay to go to a track meet, you know, 10 times a year. They want to do it a couple times a year. I guess baseball has 162 games. I mean, hell, you could have a meet every year, every Friday before Boston Marathon weekend, right? It's kind of late for an indoor track, but why can't you have 5,000 people is probably the size for a track meet in the U.S. They could just make it an annual thing. Who cares that it's indoors? I think that might be a great weekend to do it. Yeah, well, I, the problem is you have Adidas sponsoring the Boston Marathon and sort of the associated races. So they have like Adidas athletes will show up and run at the BAA Mile, the BAA 5K. BAA 5K actually gets pretty good fields. But if those things are going head to head, you know, maybe the, you maybe need some synergy between the shoe companies because BAA is a, yeah, like our other shoe brands, like is Nike going to want to spend a, send a bunch of their top athletes to run in Boston over Boston Marathon weekend when Adidas sponsors the marathon? I don't know. At a New Balance facility, you know, racing in a New Balance facility, you need some synergy. New Balance sponsors the Armory and athletes go there and compete. So hopefully Nike doesn't say, oh, you can't go to the New Balance track. I mean, that's their own problem. It's a track. These are independent contractors. They should be allowed to compete wherever they want to compete. Um, but I, you said New Balance and Adidas. The sort of neither one of those actually sponsors that many people in the U.S. New Balance doesn't. I can't think of a single distance runner they sponsor in the U.S. Man, can you? If they still sponsor Drew Piazza, he will be the only one that I I know of. So New Balance needs to up it up its game in that aspect you know like it doesn't cost that much to sponsor a few men but they're a private company they can do what they want they've sort of obviously gone with this woman only model in the u.s abroad they're sponsoring everything now they've really upped their game but they're a private company they can do whatever the hell they want and the davis family is i'm glad they decided to drop however much money they wanted to into this track because it's a nice addition what was the race actually like, though? I mean, I'm amazed that I, I couldn't believe it. Y'all said there was thousands of people there to watch one race of people racing the clock. That sounds like watching paint dry, but y'all sound like it was exciting. No, it was because they had music pumping the whole time and they had the pacing lights. So you could see exactly, and they set up each leg to be run at the specific, the lights were set up for each leg to run at that leg's pace. So that worked nicely. And they had, they had a humongous video board at one end and then on the other end they had a board comparing what they were on pace to run versus the actual record split so it was very slickly done the whole presentation and you know you had people on the pa keith kelly was on the pa telling people you know pump to get pumped up and to yell for them when they came around the, the finish line so you know it's a 10 minute race but people were, with the light, pacing lights and the music people definitely got into it and maybe the free beer helped. I didn't know there was free beer, John. I, some of the communication wasn't the best. I did think after this, though, that New Balance pretty soon they're not like this was the thing that they've done a lot of a lot. Like, oh, how can we get people excited? 
let's break the women's DMR world record again because it's low-hanging fruit. They did that at the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix in 2015. They did it again in 2017. They did it now in 2022. But now the record's actually getting pretty good. Ellie Paria split, what, 423? Like, you know, most women's American milers can't just roll out of bed and run a 423. So they may need to start targeting some other soft record to get people excited about because now the women's DMR, this was faster than the outdoor world record. It's an official world record. Before it was just a world best in the indoor DMR. Now this is the overall world record. They may need to target something else. For the record, New Balance is seven figure plus per year. Endorsement star and media darling Sydney McLaughlin did not run the race. Pulling out what the day of, night before, with some sort of Injury, she hasn't raced at all this year. Didn't we talk about this before? Will Femke Bowl, who is you know, young like her, ever win a world or Olympic title? I think said the answer is yes. I think this confirms this. I think Femke, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I think Femke loves track and field, everything about it. I know an injury doesn't mean you don't love it, but I just think Sydney's Delilah will be getting older. Sydney will miss a race or two or... Who knows if she'll still be motivated? I don't know. So far in her professional career, Sydney McLaughlin has shown up and delivered at both of the global championships that in 2019 and 2021. I'm until she starts not showing up at those meets, I'm not really going to be worried about some minor hamstring issue in April. And with different coaches, which to me means a lot. Like she's it doesn't really matter who's coaching her; she's just done it somehow. All I'm saying is I spent a lot of the weekend over Easter Sunday and Sunday reading some pieces by Ethan Strauss on Substack. He wrote a fascinating piece. I'll link to it on the show notes about how, what is this youngest generation called, John? Gen Z. Gen Z. If you look at their athletes, particularly the female athletes, so many of them are so, so accomplished, but so, so unhappy. Not enjoying it. Fascinating piece. Got to read it. Robert, who I'm more concerned about, where the hell is she Carrie Richardson? She was supposed to run the Texas Relays with draws, no explanation. Supposed to run the Bermuda Games with draws, no explanation. I reached out to her agent, Ronaldo Nehemiah. Where is she? Why is she withdrawing from these meets? No response. Now she's supposed to run this Nairobi Continental Tour gold meet in Kenya on May 7th against Shelly Ann Fraser-Price. Just saying there's a lot of rumors swirling about what she's up to. No one really knows. That's someone I would be far more concerned about. You know, but I think before a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, she hasn't opened up her season yet. But now that I think of it and having talking talked to some people and just sort of, they're also sort of not sure what's going on. That's someone I'm going to be watching. Like what happens to her? Wait, the Nairobi Continental Tour meet had the money to get Shakiri and Shelly and Fraser Price. That's like a marquee matchup at a hundred. Yeah. If it happens, if Shakiri shows up for that meet. All right. Speaking of other track stuff, you know, a bunch of fast times in the NCAA over the weekend. A couple stood out to me. Moad Zahi, Moad Zahafi of Texas Tech. He ran one forty three sixty nine at the University of Florida. He crushed a very good field, one that included NCAA indoor champ Brandon Miller. He beat Miller by over three seconds. That's the third fastest time ever in the NCAA by Zahafi, behind only Donovan Brazier and Michael Saruni. So 
really big run by him. And then Elliot Kipsang at Brian Clay, he runs 333.74. He takes almost a second off Yard Nagusa's NCAA record in the 1500. This is pretty crazy because Kipsang was only eighth in the mile at NCAA indoors. He was fourth in the 1500 last year. He did run pretty quick, but it made me think, could the curse of the NCAA 1500 mile record continue? Because if you go back, here are the last nine, nine guys to break an NCAA record either in the 1500 or the mile. Elliot Kipsang, Yard Nagus, Sam Tanner, Cooper Tier, Josh Kerr, Edward Cheserak, Lowie Lalang, Chris O'Hare, and Miles Baddy. Now, there's a number of NCAA champions on that list, but none of them won the NCAA title in the mile of the 1500 the season they broke the record. And I think between a healthy yard to goose this spring and NCAA indoor champ Mario Garcia Romo, I think that streak could continue with Kip saying this year outdoors. Or do you think I'm wrong? That's an amazing stat, John. This guy was eighth at NCAA indoors. I don't think you're wrong. I'd be more shocked if he did win. And, but it's sort of crazy, right? The 1500, you can run these, fast times and not do it in championship racing. It's one of the things that makes the 1500 so unique, right? And the 5K, if you're faster than anyone, you probably outrun people at the end of the race, even the race goes slow for part of it. The 800, you can kind of control the first lap. There's not as much, but like think back to like all those Olympics, Hisham El Garouche. The top guy doesn't always win. It's just such time trialing of Steve Holman. It's so different from running a championship race, so I don't think he'll win it. But, John, the big 1,500 news out of Brian Clay was our very own intern Carl Winter lowering the Let's Run.com Supporters Club record. He ran 339 point, took down UTV Sensation Athlete Special. Congrats to Carl. Yeah, he'll be at the NCAA West Regionals and hope to earn his way to a reunion with Let's Run. Actually, I don't think I've ever even met Carl in person. I'm trying to remember if I've ever been to the same meet. I'm not sure if I have. But yeah, hoping to earn his way to Eugene, whereas I can just get there by applying for a media credential. So best of luck, Carl. Is it bad to say I hope he doesn't make it to NCAAs or USAs because those don't look good for my schedule this weekend and I kind of need near and maybe I was hoping he could we could pay him to cover those meets for us. Yes, that's terrible. I hope he wins them both. We got to get our NIL deal with Carl signed quickly. All right, couple other notable results. There was a pro meet at Mount Sac on Saturday, which has some great sprint matchups. Elaine Thompson Hurrah ran ten eighty nine, world leader in the first round of the hundred. Unfortunately, she didn't run to the final, which was. You, know, you fly all the way out, you only run one round. I, okay, it's, I can't, that's kind of a lame move. But Twanisha Terry won that final 10-7-7, wind aided. And then I was really impressed. That was an impressive run by her because she beat some real legit women, including Tiana Daniels, you know, the Olympic finalist from last year. Then in the men's race, Makai Williams from Oregon, who was 19th, sorry, 5th at the last Olympic trials at the age of 19 in the 100, he ran 983. Again, that was wind aided two. It was a 2.5. It wasn't a huge wind aided thing. So that's like low 99s or high 98 if he gets maybe a 2.0. That guy's a star. I, I just watched, I mean, 
you're running nine eight three. I know it's wind eighty, but at age twenty, this guy's going to be a big deal. It's not like the U.S. is hurting in sprint talent, but we might have another superstar in our hands, John. And then, speaking of superstars, we had a showdown in the two hundred meters. Fred Curley, Michael Norman, Rye Benjamin, and Christian Coleman was supposed to be in this race. He ended up scratching, but the race we got was absolutely terrific. Norman had the lead coming off the turn. Curley runs him down. They're both going very close. Curley wins it 19.80 to Norman's 19.83. I think both men, for me, that was a good sign for Michael Norman. That's a good opener. But it's also a reminder, Curley, anything from 100 through 400, you match him up against pretty much anyone in the world, he's going to be very competitive. So that was just awesome to see. And then, you know, Norman said afterwards, he can't wait for the rematch. He wants there to be a rematch. Uh, that watching that got me pumped up. I'm really excited to see some of these big sprint showdowns at USA's and Worlds this year. They need to rearrange the schedule, right? So Curly can do the triple. <laughs> it's pretty nuts. And the Elaine Thompson thing, can't we find a meet where she runs the final instead of the prelim? Uh, it just this just once again shows everything wrong with her sport. Heck, give her a bye. I don't care. Right. I, I'm fine with the policy of Mount Sachs says she's the Olympic champion. We're not going to make her run in the free limbs. She gets an automatic lane in the final, and she just races there. For the fans, that's a much better prospect than her just running one prelim race and then withdrawing. A hundred percent. This race is, you know, this meets on TV. So, yeah. Or then you have an A hundred and a B hundred, and she's in the A hundred. Like, think of something. Yes, cater to the stars. Cater to the stars. Figure something out. Or couldn't her agency pick a meet where there's just a final? Or, uh, but Mount Sack should accommodate her in some way. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming this was a pre-planned thing. She she ran ten eight nine. She didn't appear to be hobbling or anything. If it's injury related, I give I'll give her a pause. Nope. That that doesn't seem like to be what the case was. I listened to her interview afterwards. Pre-planned. Oh, then yeah, that's lame. Uh, one other notable result from I mean, Bryce Hubble won the eight hundred. That was actually a pretty interesting race to watch. Because Ryan Sanchez from Puerto Rico, he went out really hard. I think maybe some people thought he was the pacemaker or something. They kind of let him go. And then Hopple had to run him down right at the end. It was pretty windy. But he got the win, 147. And then more impressive was the women's 800. You know, we told, we've got the Olympic champion, Thing Mo. We've got the world indoor champion, Ajay Wilson, in the United States. But don't forget about Raven Rogers, the Olympic. Bro- she's got medals from 2019 World Silver, 2021 Olympics Bronze. She uncharacteristically went wire to wire from the front in this race and ran 158.77. So that was a really impressive outdoor opener for her. God, trying to make the U.S. team at 800 this year is just nuts. I'll just redo that because it'd be easier to take it out. Just. Man, making the U.S. team at 800 this year, not going to be easy, right? Is that your team? Does anyone else have a chance? There's some really good 800-meter runners in the U.S. I mean, Kate Grace had a great season last year, but I, I really find it hard to imagine anyone's going to be beating RJ Wilson, Braven Rogers, and a thing Mo if they're all on that game. That's two 155 women and a 156 woman. It's just the level is absurd right now. And last week, I expressed some concern for how Thing Mo after a 51-7 at Texas A&M. This weekend, she did run the 4x4 at Mount Sac. 
50.43 was her split on the anchor. What a relay split is worth like what three quarters of a second? Is that right? So 51.1. Not terrible, but not amazing for her. But you guys aren't talking about the news. I wanted to talk about when talks about super shoes in Newberry Park and Sean Brosnan, and folks. This team's not even as good as Alan Webb's team was, what, close to 20 years ago? They failed to break Alan Webb's team record. Southwick's Alan Webb's hiding in 948.78 back in the day. Newberry Park has run 955. 24 this week after a 301 opening 1200 leg, 53.7 on the. 400, 156, 11, and 404, 18. There was talk that they would go by for the 4 by 1600 record, but one of the Salmons, I think, may have COVID. One that bombed around 902. He was out of the meet because he's sick. I don't know if he has COVID or what, but he's not running. They've apparently pulled out of pin relays as a result. So I was just kind of wondering again, I'm always looking for sad. I've become old and looking for the negative and things, but like, you guys are you guys are running a lot of big emotionally charged publicized races. Like, are they starting to get a little bit tired? I mean, I guess it's hard. They didn't have their A team for this thing. Um, apparently, they have like a better quarter guy, but he plays soccer. He wasn't there. But the girls team for Newberry Park did break the national record in the four by sixteen hundred. So, congrats to them. But my big bold prediction right now is. Colin Salmon will lose a race this year to another U.S. high schooler. People think that's impossible. Even the great Grant Fisher, who was unbeatable, winning back-to-back. Did he win back-to-back footlocker, John, or am I making that up? No, he did that. And then he lost to a guy by the name of... Drew Hunter. Drew Hunter. 2015 Brooks PR invite. I remember it. So there's some young guys running well in the mile. I really hope we get all these guys in the mile. Okay, the Newberry Park thing, the girls break a national record, and we're just kind of like, wow. I mean, Sean Brosnan's just bringing it. The guy deserves major props. All right. One other thing, speaking of relays, before we leave, I'm sure you guys saw this by now, but Oregon Track and Field tweeted out the other day that there's going to be a four-by-mile, well, they're calling it a world-best attempt with Cupertier, Cole Hawker, James West, and Matt Wisner for Oregon alums. And then they said at the bottom, we've reached out to multiple pro and college teams, but haven't gotten any takers. Eye emojis. And the more I look at that tweet, the more it just pisses me off. Because there is a meet, one of the most famous trap meets in the entire world, taking place one week later. It's called the Pen Relays. There's a professional four-by-mile in that meet, the On Athletics Club has already said they're targeting the world best in that event. This has been publicized well in advance. And now Oregon is trying to suggest that people are dodging them. No one wants to race them. This is absurd. They can easily fly on a plane to Philadelphia, race in this meet, and go for the record against On. Yet they are just choosing to hang at home. And I'm like, this is the same team when they set it. They tried to go for the American record indoors. They had a closed-off race in Chicago. It's the same team that ran a three-mile time trial at Stanford instead of going to World Indoors. I mean, sorry. I, I just It's the tone of the tweet more than anything. Just saying, like, 
We've reached out to multiple pro teams and haven't had any takers. Like, come on, run pen. What this is what's wrong with the sport, people. The tweet absolutely pisses me off as well, John. Like, come on, just stop acting like like people are ducking you. Yes, go to Penn. Does Nike no longer sponsor Penn? Is that why they're not going? But- oh, Ons, 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 the sponsor of Penn. Now. <laughs> bingo, bingo, sport. bingo, bingo. Hello, bingo, 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 bingo. And you know, but look, John, think about it from their self centered. They need the Oregon. What's the big thing? Why did Martin Smith get fired at Oregon? He wasn't super successful, but he was pretty successful. But he didn't cater to the crowd, the hometown track boosters. He didn't do anything about the fans. And what does Robert Johnson, the coach of Oregon, now get criticized for? Not running enough home meets, not catering to the local fans. Everything is everything now is you go to these other meets and fun. So they have a home meet. They need to have something for the fans to get excited for. So instead of making the college kids run something big, why not make the pros do it? Entertain the fans. It's an easy thing. There's, I, I mean, I don't know the details of this, but this is what it's striking me as. Hey, this would be a good thing. We can blow 16 minutes of entertainment here with this event, and we don't want to go support an on-event anyway. So that's it's just people doing it. And I really hope that this New Balance track doesn't become a thing where people won't go there because it's a New Balance track. If that's the case, then people should start skipping USAs because it's on a Nike track. So... um it is what it is, man. I mean, disappointing. Yes. I mean, Robert, you're probably onto something about entertaining the Oregon fans. Everyone's in their little bubble, right? No one gives a shit about everybody else. That's a problem with the sport. But John, the good thing was people on Twitter, they weren't having it right away. Someone's like, or, you know, they could race the OAC at pin relays. who already announced their tensions three months ago. And then he throws a little shade. I know Cooper and Cole love a good time trial, though. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Next one, or the second one after that. Crap like this is what kills the sport. There's literally Penn and Drake relays. So I've never heard John give a rant before. I mean, John, I was going to bring this up. John, I'm glad to see you getting upset about something. I, no, it's just there's something that irritates me. Like trying to, it's if you want to just publicize the event, fine, and then we can criticize it. But don't act like you're trying to seek out the best competition and no one will race you. We, you know where the competition is in this same exact meet, the same exact event a week later. The thing is, though, that, so two other things on this. One, I don't even know what you would call this if they get the record because it's not a world record because it's not an official world athletics world record event. And normally for a world best, I thought for a world best, you need to still be from the same country. Like the current world best is 1549 by an Irish team from 1985. But Kubatia, Cole Hawker and Matt Wisner, they're all American, but James West is British. So I don't know if he even qualifies as a world best. They would just call it the fastest time ever run. And that's also the same thing w- that would happen with On because their squad is supposed to be Geordie Beamish, Morgan McDonald, Joe Klecker, and Ollie Hoare. They're from three different countries. I also, I-, I will say this, and this could end up bailing Oregon out, is Morgan McDonald basically hasn't been racing. Joe Klecker hasn't been racing. On might pull the plug on that attempt if their guys aren't healthy. I think they have... Carlos Villarreal, who also hasn't been racing. So if they only have three healthy guys or two healthy guys for that race, 
they might say, oh, it's no point going for it. We're not even going to run it. And if that's the case, then, okay, Oregon gets the record and they, they didn't waste time flying out to Penn. But, you know, I, I sincerely hope they reached out to On and maybe if On said they weren't going to run, they gave him a heads up. Because otherwise, this they should, these two pro groups should be racing each other, not just the clock. What's the record, John? 1549. Doesn't bother me that they're not in the same country. Who cares? It's not a real world record. Just run the fastest time ever. Hey, if On has two people and they need somebody to run, they need to pay somebody else from another street company to just hop on the team and go for the world record. Like you've hyped it as a world record attempt. Own it up now and do something. It doesn't have to be just an On team that does it. It can be two On members that do it with somebody else. I guess it would be helpful if they were all from the same country to sell it a little bit better, better to the media. I was thinking nobody was going to get it, John, because of the on injuries, but Cooper and Cole, and guess else what you got in Oregon, John, the pacing lights. And having seen the pacing lights for the first time ever in New Balance, they make a huge, it just makes it easier. Well, for the fans and journalists, for sure, but I think for the runners, right? Yeah. Just, especially in a four by model, you're kind of bored. There's no one there. Just chase the light, stay ahead of the light. Now, they're going to need Cole Cooper. But they can set the lights individually for each way because Cooper and Cole are going to need to get like way ahead of the record. Have the other guys just sort of hold on. So I don't know. This whole thing's a bit bizarre. You know, we have a high school team now pulling out of a meet like what two weeks in advance. This this is who knew the drama in the four by mile this year. Yeah. Well, what about this theory, Robert? You say they need an extra leg. How about they fly out Colin Salmon to run on the on team? You know, assuming he's healthy and doesn't, you know, able to run, maybe his whole team couldn't do that. But you put him on; he's a three fifty eight guy. Hype him up as part of the attempt. Sow some goodwill down the road. That's the New Balance strategy of getting Rasheem Willis and Sidney McLaughlin. I think that would be pretty fun. And John, I'm surprised you haven't ranted about that. Part of the New Balance thing that was really cool is they have a high schooler on their team, Rosen Willis. She runs, you know, well two hundred three. They get the record. It's one of the cool angles of the story. And the New Balance says, like, she can't talk to the press. Like, she talks to the press all the time. She's writing articles for ma- magazines and stuff. It just, no, it, it was outrageous. Like, and I think it's just the PR firm they hired. I don't think we're used to organizing trap meets or that sort of thing. But yeah, they told me, you know, go upstairs, wait for them, wait for them to cool down, sign autographs. That's fine. You know, but then. I got two minutes with Ellie and Heather and didn't get to talk to, they were told, I was asked to talk to Kendall Ellis and Rasheem Willis. And I was told they were unavailable by this new balance staffer or the PR person. So yes, that's really a thumbs down. If you're going to have this big event to promote your athletes and to promote your brand, and then you're not making these people available to talk to the media after the race, that's ridiculous. Especially since, like you said, I talked to Rasheem Willis when she broke the high school record. She's used to doing post-race interviews. If she wants to talk, let her make that decision. But don't just unilaterally say it on their behalf. John, the one thing we probably don't want to hear is I think some of these brands, they like to just pre- present their message straight out there through Instagram. You know, they're sponsoring influencers and whatnot. It's kind of funny, Robert, before this meet, we're trying to meet up to get our credentials. And it's me, John, and the New York Times guy. <laughs> like, right, like the gun's about to go off and they won't let us on the track because they don't have a credential. We're like... I'm like, okay, us, whatever. But like the New York Times, you know, John's friends with a guy, like we can't get to the track because like you don't have the right credential. We're like, oh my gosh. John, 
you're officially becoming old. John's ranting about not being treated right in the media box. Hey, this is why I said earlier they should mandate it. I am worried as a member of the media that people are just going to think the media doesn't serve a role anymore and just people can go straight to the masses now with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. They don't need us. Hey, we ask legitimate questions. If, if you want heliography, go somewhere else. Yeah, Robert, I'm not asking for, for special treatment. I'm just asking to talk to Rasheem Willis after the race, which I'm sure many people would have liked to hear. Or how about Kendall Ellis, who had to catch her? She was not even supposed to run this meet. She was supposed to run Mount Sac. She catches a red eye Thursday night from California, arrives Friday morning at 6.30 in the morning, and then runs a 52.04 that night to help break the record. I'm sure people would have loved to hear their story. But they said, no, you can't talk to them. So that, yeah, that's, I find absurd. And then for some reason, I got an email. Maybe we were all CC'd on it from the press company saying, hey, hey can you please change the pre-race article that you said that had said Sydney McLaughlin was going to run in the race because she didn't race? I'm like, what? That was a preview. Like, why would we change it now? Like, that's already been published. I mean, I guess we could go back. Do they want to pay me to change it, to go back to spend the time just to go and change it? It's funny. I saw the same thing, but none of us have talked about it internally. I'm like, it was a news article. She pulled down afterwards. I didn't, I didn't feel like doing it because... I mean, should should we go back and change... Uh, should everyone change their Olympic previews because Simone Biles withdrew from some of the events at the Olympics and it's no longer... No. I mean, come on. She was running. They announced she was running, then she withdrew. It's not a big deal. All right. That's what you do. If you If you stick us in front of a microphone for too long, we start ranting about things old man journalist stuff and you know now we're probably going to be on people's shit list but whatever that's what we do on the let's run.com podcast yeah I, we had some technical issues behind the scenes so i have no idea how long this actual podcast is it's a long one because of the boston marathon guys but hey we covered a lot of ground you guys got anything else you're gonna have some major editing to do because it took forever i was in such a bad mood i'm gonna confess why it's because like I spent all this money to have my sound effects and I couldn't get it to work. John, I may have to make the Rojo rant music yours, though. I'll share it with you. I teach my son to share. I should share, too. No, Robert, come on. We all know. You say it all the time. People listen to this podcast to hear Robert Johnson talk. That's why they're here. So I wouldn't want to take that part of this precious podcast from you. All right. If you are still listening, hope you enjoyed our Boston Marathon recap. And we will be back for Friday 15, we'll have to find something to talk about. There aren't many meets this weekend, but we'll have some, we'll have at least 15 minutes to discuss on Friday for the Friday 15 until then. Remember, if you want to take your recovery seriously, you got to try the Therabody recovery air. Personally, I love the jet boots because they're wireless, super easy to use, fold into a little bag, 60-day money-back guarantee. Check it out for yourself. Try them out yourself. Therabody.com slash let's run. Link in the show notes.